Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where I speak with real world practitioners and get their stories from the trenches. Today, I'm joined by Jack Alice from Fathom. Hey, man, good to have you. Good to see you. Yeah, so I read your blog post about uh, denial of service attacks and uh, some of the things that you guys had to do to get around that a while back. I have to say it was really interesting. Uh, it's something that I've always kind of wondered because in the service world, we kind of call denial of service attacks the denial of body attack. <laughs> and I'm quite interested to hear about some of the things that you guys have to do um, to, I guess, to get around that uh, denial of service attack that you guys were under. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, can you maybe tell the audience about uh, yourself and about Fathom and uh, what you guys are building over there? Yeah, so I'm the co-founder of Fathom Analytics, and it's a privacy-first Google Analytics alternative. Uh, we invented privacy-first analytics, so you might have heard of privacy-first analytics by now. But we invented it a while back, GDPR compliant, no cookie notices, you know the drill. And we're we're leading the space pretty much right now, and we're kind of just smashing out features. We just launched version 3, early access, and lots is going on. So if you're sick of Google Analytics, you're bored of it, it's too complicated, you're sick of the cookie banners, come on over to usefathom.com. And that's the only pitch I'll do. <laughs> and uh, I guess in that case, um, I guess web analytics is one of those areas that uh, you can't expect to have a lot of traffic. And uh, why, I guess in that case, do you decide to use uh, serverless? Yeah, so it's really a case that, that we can have spikes at any moment. We have some truly huge customers. And when they launch a big project, so I can talk about this customer. Um, a customer of ours launched a universal basic income campaign. So it's effectively sign up for some free money. Now, you can imagine why that's popular. And they were flooded with traffic. And we need to have the capacity to be able to, uh, or the ability to scale up and to actually deal with that traffic. Because we could be comfortably sitting with, you know, some EC2s provisioned and thinking we can take it. But when you have those kinds of spikes, you just can't take it. And things could come to a to a halt and they could slow down and we have so many customers that if one customer going viral took up all of our server resources everyone would be impacted and we'd be dealing with thousands and thousands of support requests so by having the um, the elastic load balancer with lambdas we don't have to worry about that because lambda can scale up as and when we need it and then it can scale back down and then Yes, it does cost more to run lambdas, but at the same time, you're not having to over-provision to handle these ridiculous spikes. And it's not just one customer that can have a spike. You can have one customer having a spike here, and then 10 minutes later, another customer, and so on and so forth. So by going serverless, we basically protect against um, server overload. Okay. But I guess in that case, uh, you still have uh, some uh, shared uh, capacity limits around uh, you know, the regional limits for Lambda, concurrent executions. Uh, do you guys do anything special to segregate the uh, traffic for different customers so that if uh, you get one really big customer and they're having a really big uh, traffic spike, it doesn't impact everybody else? No. So we've got a really, really good uh, upper tier limit on Lambda. So we're pretty comfortable with that. Um, you know, we haven't got to the point where we're having to actually, so for example, if we had someone who's doing a billion page views a day, we would have to look into that kind of thing. We haven't got to the point where we're dealing with, you know, a billion a day. The most we're really dealing with is probably like 50 to 100 million a day, maybe of a single customer. Uh, that's very rare. You know, that's probably been seen a couple times. Typically, we're dealing with the 100,000 range um, or perhaps a few million a day. But obviously, as you get more and more customers, that certainly adds up. So it's interesting you ask that question, and we may be in that position where we have to start thinking about that. And it could come down to the fact that, you know, we might have to do dedicated 
um, setups for individual customers. But we're not there yet. Yeah, I hope you get there because uh, uh, that would be quite interesting uh, <laughs> once you get to that uh, that, that level of throughput. Um, and I guess yeah. that you said that you're using AOB with Lambda uh, instead of API Gateway. Is that like a cost-saving yeah, okay, so I'm happy to talk about this. So our setup is done through Laravel Vapor, and you have a few options for setup. Basically, we don't manage any of the actual configuration. We Vapor, Vapor is almost like a platform as a service that provisions serverless infrastructure behind the scenes. Um, so you might have heard of Breath if you're in the PHP community. Uh, Vapor is, Laravel Vapor is just something that handles that all for you. Now, as for why we use ALB, API Gateway is expensive, and the actual API gateway is so, so powerful, as I'm sure you know. And we just weren't using it for the features that it that it's capable that it has. So it came down to are we going to pay extra for API gateway, which is more expensive than the ALB for our use case? Are we going to pay extra for all these features that we're not using? We're not using authentication and there's so many things it can do. We're not using that. So it actually made more sense to go with with the elastic load balancing approach. And then we've um I think at the moment we're going direct, but in the next few weeks to a few months, we're going to be putting a CDN in front of that to reduce that time to first byte. So that'll be fun. Yeah, I remember reading some uh, some post uh, that went uh, viral on Hacker News uh, a while back. Uh, it was uh, someone who was uh, building API. It was uh, pretty high traffic, I think. It was doing about 10,000 requests per second on average. And then at the end of the month, he found that he's got a big AWS bill. And uh, and then when he drilled down into it, it turns out most of that was API Gateway because, like I said, the API Gateway is pretty expensive, uh, much more so than the Lambda invocations uh, that uh, he had. So I guess in this case, uh, given the traffic you're dealing with, uh, I think it makes a lot of sense to use ALP. And, and even if you're going to move move between versions, you know they have that new, newer version where it's in a, a single region, a uh, single available, no, I forget what it is, but it's not globally available, right? The There's a... There's, uh, different versions of API Gateway. So you go to the cheaper one and you just think, well, that's still more expensive than ELB. So I may as well just jump to ELB. Unless you're using all of the features or or some of the special features on API Gateway, I wouldn't push to use that personally. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you're talking about the HTTP APIs on API Gateway, which is like 70% cheaper than the, the REST API. Uh, but uh, when I did when I crunch some numbers before, I think once it hit a couple thousand requests per second, uh, it's still going to be maybe five, ten times more expensive than what you'll pay on ALB for the same amount of traffic. So I think uh, you know, in terms of from, from the cost point of view, like I said, if you're not using it, why pay so much more uh, for API Gateway? Unless you're using the free tier, then you can make an argument for it, right? If you've got a small application, you fit into that free tier. Then there's the argument, and I'll, I'll shut up about not using it. But if you're going past that free tier, then I definitely, I, I just consider that, I recommend that people take a second look. Right. And uh, I guess another uh, question around uh, that, uh, I guess that brings us into the conversation around the denial of service attack. Because uh, the, the proposal you wrote was amazing. Uh, I, I would put a link to it in the show notes. But uh, uh, for listeners who haven't read it, can you maybe give us a recap of what happened and some of the things you guys had to do to get around that uh, that attack? Yeah, sure. Okay, so I'll first talk about my experience with this kind of thing. I came into serverless, oh, what is it, late late 2020? I forget, we moved from Heroku. I'm not a server person. I spend all my time writing application code. Um, I loosely describe myself as full stack, but 
you know, I can work with it, but it's definitely not my speciality. So coming into this serverless thing, I wasn't thinking about things like firewalls and DDoS attacks. It's just not my experience. So we were, we were running nicely. We were running on Lambda, probably API Gateway at the time. I forget what we were using. And we were getting more and more attention, more and more hype. Bigger companies were using us and people were learning about us. And as you become bigger and bigger, you become a target. Uh, I'm not going to talk about who is targeting you, but you do become a bigger target. And we was, we were just started to get hit with these spam attacks. And we thought, okay, someone's hitting us with spam attacks. They're trying to ruin our customers' data and, and that kind of thing. And we we built some things to combat that, but we didn't necessarily think of it as a DDoS attack because it wasn't a DDoS attack at that point. They weren't trying to deny service. They were just sending us spam. Then at some point they just ramped up. And what was happening is they they started targeting us when they thought that we'd be in bed. And they, they'd hit us at about midnight, I think, or midnight UTC or something like that. And they would just flood us with requests. And it, it would actually overload the Lambda because obviously we have a limit on the Lambda and it's a high limit but we were getting absolutely whacked. And at that moment in time, we didn't have anything like WAF configured, right? So everything was just passing through, hitting the application, the lambdas were running. And we have a, and this is before, Aurora didn't have the new version of their serverless database at the time. They had it so that, you know, when your database got hit, it takes time to scale up. And because of that, we went with an over-provisioned fixed size database, which you can definitely look into and say, ah, maybe you shouldn't have done that. But I just didn't get on with Aurora for multiple reasons. So what was happening is the lambdas could take it, but because it was hitting that fixed size MySQL database, it was taking ages to actually finish the request. So we were getting billed for Lambda runtime because we had a quite a high timeout and the database was just getting destroyed. So everything was just was impacted in huge ways. And that happened over and over. And I think at one point it was happening for multiple days. And again, like I I said at the beginning of this explanation, I'm not a server guy. I'm not an expert at this kind of stuff. Um, But unfortunately, I had to become a bit of an, uh, not an expert, but I had to learn about this stuff. So then we had to speak with the the DDoS response team, uh, DRT, Amazon AWS Shield, uh, Pro or whatever it's called. And we had to get them to come and help us with these attacks. And all it boiled down to, once we actually looked at the traffic, was um, we had to identify how uh, the patterns of the attacks and we had to block those patterns. And they adapt all the time, right? But we had to then speak with them and get a, a decent WAF configuration in place. And that's how we effectively solved it. So we were sitting ducks because we hadn't done the appropriate security configuration. And, you know, a lot of people might sit back and go, ha, you should have done that. Well, guess what? There are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who've never dealt with this stuff, who right now, I could spin something up. I could go into the uh, the black market and buy something and get a DDoS attack to attack your site and it would go offline. So don't be complacent about this stuff. I mean, we certainly weren't complacent, but you don't know what you don't know. So do do read my blog post and do um, do read what we learned, but definitely look at the WAF uh, WAF um, instructions. And also, Amazon has this best practices thing people talk about. I don't know if you're familiar with that, Jan. It's um, something that you can find online. Do you know about that? Have you heard about that? Yeah, it's the well architected uh, framework. Um, the, That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're listening to me now, definitely review that. When I was on a podcast talking about this before, someone said to me, you know, you should have read this. And I absolutely should have read that. But this wasn't something I was aware of. So anyone listening to this, check that out and make sure you're protected because your wallet will appreciate it. 
Yeah, I would uh, put that in the show notes. Uh, so the well, architecture framework covers a number of different pillars, including security, performance, cost, and so on, uh, that uh, give you a lot of, uh, um, I guess, actionable advice on how you should architect your system and some of the attack vectors you should think about. And um, the service team has also, the, I guess the solution architect team has also put together um, maybe that was the well architecture team has put together an online tool that you can use from the AWS console um, that will essentially run you through a questionnaire and you can answer different questions and uh, they will tell you at the end that oh you need to do this you need to do that you haven't configured WAF you haven't configured uh, um bunch of other things like that uh, which is uh, super useful for doing like a checklist before you go live with something um, I guess in this case, uh, the other thing you mentioned uh, there was that you contacted AWS uh, through the Shield Advanced Team, uh, which gives you the access to the rapid response. Uh, was it the now service response team or something like that? Um, was there any specific advice that they gave you that was uh, the most effective in terms of uh, uh, fighting off the attack? So this is a tricky one to talk about because... I've got to be careful what what is generic and what is specific to us because I can't reveal certain things that we've done. Um, obviously, the thing I can say, okay, look, rate limiting is really important. Everyone should be doing rate limiting of some sort. Um, you should also, and it's tricky for us because we're a privacy first solution. We can't actually store things like the IP address, the path name, the user agent, because we're processing data for tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of websites. So we're getting all this information coming in. And if we kept access logs, that's problematic for everything we stand for. So let's pretend you're not an analytics company, okay? You're just, you're just a normal website where keeping access logs is fine because it's your website. You're not profiling people across the web. It's your website. The piece of advice we got was, you know, are people trying to load resources directly without loading the homepage or things like that? But behavior you wouldn't expect. You can match that in the in the access logs using Athena. Actually, it's really really powerful. Once you've got it all set up and you've got uh, Kinesis, Firehose, whatever it's called, you can set all these access logs up and then you can query it and find these patterns. You can then look for offending IPs that you, you should be blocking based on the weird patterns that they're making. But honestly, um, the rate limiting is huge. Uh, definitely everyone should have some kind of rate limiting because that's going to help you a lot. Um, as well, a common thing we see in the Laravel space, people, people allow the X forwarded for there's no protection on that because you don't know the IP address of the load balancer that's forwarding it to your application. In the Laravel code, it kind of has a wildcard. So you can actually spoof an IP address from the request. Just be careful with that kind of stuff. You know, just be careful. We had this with our attacks. The attacker was, was spoofing the IP address. Um, so just be mindful of that X forwarded for header and make sure you're rate limiting on the actual server IP and not anything else. So if you're doing an application level IP you know, detection, just be careful if you're, if you're using Laravel and perhaps other frameworks, okay? That's good advice. And that's actually very applicable in terms of uh, looking at the behaviors that you don't expect to see and then uh, finding bad actors that way. Um, uh, once you've identified a bad actor, how do you then add that IP to the firewall? Do you make an API call to WAF to add the... Great question. That is not currently set up. That is on the list. So what we're doing is we're actually building a security dashboard. And we've had talks about whether we'll publish this or whether we'll sell it. We, I don't think we will. We're building a security dashboard that links into things and 
you know, it's nothing special. It's not artificial intelligence, but we write code to try and identify things. And then what happens is it keeps track of the bad IPs and then it can sync that through to API gateway. At the moment, we were just doing a kind of a copying a big list of IPs and blocking them manually. That that just, you know, you can do that, but it's very dramatic. It would be nice if you could kind of whack a mole you know, and just press a button on your security dashboard and then utilize that beautiful API and sync it through. So that's definitely on the list, but we're not doing that right now. Okay, cool. Uh, it's, it's good to know that uh, that's an option because, uh, again, you, know, you want to minimize the amount of uh, manual stuff that you have to do uh, whenever a bank actor pops up because, uh, like you said, it's back and more, right? You take one IP down, they're going to bring up another one. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. One piece of advice I actually got from FOLA from the um, DDoS, uh, what is it called? AWS Shield Advanced Response Team, uh, whatever they call it, oh, the AWS Shield Advanced Team. He made a really good point and he said, you know, they've only got so much money for this attack. And that was that really stuck with me. You know, there's only so much resources. Our situation was different. I, I can't talk in huge detail about what ended up and what we learned, but yeah, they've only got so many resources, right? So you can fight back. And I, as well, I was thinking, oh, I shouldn't pass a 403 back to them because then they're going to ramp things up and get angry and keep trying to attack. And Foda said, no, 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 no. They are trying to get something from this attack. You need to actually send a 403 and say, no, 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 we've got you. We know what you're doing. And heck, you know what? Me, even me being a little bit cocky on this podcast could be, could the attacker could listen to this and go, you know what? We're going to just try and get them again and again and again. So I, again, I've got to be a little bit careful. And this is why people don't talk about DDoS in public. But um, you know what? We, you know, Cloudflare can do it. We can do it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think these kind of lessons is really valuable for more people to uh, to, to to find out about because again, uh, you know, when you become successful, like you said, once uh, some sort of bad actors are noticing you because you're doing well, uh, that's when you become a target. And let me add one thing as well. I'm talking here about a layer 7 DDoS attack. Clearly, if someone's got a huge, huge botnet and they do, I mean, Amazon will absorb a lot of it, right? But if someone's got a huge, huge botnet and they're so damn motivated and their budget is so much, you know, there are going to be problems and you're going to have to reach out to professionals again and again and again. Um, so I'm not saying that you can't DDoS fathom. That's not the the narrative here. I'm just saying that if you've got these kind of uh, script kiddies or, you know, people with questionable resources, then you can you can fight back. Yeah, I remember um, back in the day, uh, I was I forgot who he was now. I think it was David Fowler, maybe from the Microsoft team. Uh, he wrote this, uh, uh, I think it was a white paper about uh, uh, about security. Uh, it's basically Mossad or no Mossad. So basically, if uh, something like a Mossad going after you, well, you know, you're done anyway. Uh, but everything else, uh, you can do something about that. Like I said, if it's, <laughs> if it's a script kitty, uh, kitty then uh, you can do something about that. Um, you know, deal with the low-hanging fruits. Don't make yourself an easy target. <laughs> yeah. And i tell you what, I people were saying to me about Cloudflare. And Cloudflare's solution to layer 7 DDoS attacks, what do Cloudflare do? They throw up a, a capture a lot of the time and say, prove that you're not a robot. Okay, that's fine. But as an analytics company, we need to continue serving legitimate traffic and everything else. And, and their rate limiting is really expensive. I, I was um, showing a friend about some cloud because they would use Cloudflare and we were looking at it and it's expensive compared to WAF. So I just, in the end, I just said, look, you've got to go to, you just go to WAF. It's going to be much cheaper uh, than using Cloudflare. But, but the point is that they don't, Cloudflare doesn't really do layer seven that well, in my opinion, you know, people can hate on me for that, but that's how I feel. Okay. That's fair. I haven't used the Cloudflare very much myself, so I'll take your word for it. 
Um, I guess another thing I want to bring out and, and ask you about is that because uh, you you said you come from I guess more of a full stack front end development world coming and uh, coming to serverless and not being a I guess uh, like you said an expert on the server side stuff. Um, what are some of the biggest challenges you find in terms of uh, adoption? Uh, was it tooling? Is it some of the I guess the practices that you're used to like writing unit tests and things like that become quite difficult mm. to translate? Yeah, good question. Um entry level for sure uh, you know to actually before laravel vapor existed i mean maybe breath did it but you there wasn't just an easy way to get a laravel application onto lambda and everything else so the beauty of laravel vapor is that it actually orchestrates everything and brings it all together um, i've never had to configure lambda like i wouldn't even i could probably get it working right but i wouldn't i don't want to spend time learning this i haven't got time to learn this right so actually learning how all this tooling links together and setting it all up. That is the thing that stopped me. Whereas I could go onto something like Heroku and deploy my application. Nothing existed like that for Laravel that was that simple and that beautiful. And then Laravel Vapor came along and, and so many people, I mean, I have a course on, I have serverless, my serverless Laravel course. I don't know if you know about that. So serverless Laravel, I teach people how to use Laravel Vapor. And I've sold over a thousand copies of that and i know that vapor is very popular so you've suddenly got this this huge community of laravel developers who've got this really really heroku like um, entry into the the serverless ecosystem on aws and people are loving it so now we've got that there aren't these problems with the entry level but before that you just thought oh look at this lambda this isn't what i'm used to i'm not you know you're used to um you know pushing and uploading sftp or however you do your deploys I'm not used to all this this Lambda stuff and upload, compile my function, upload my function and AP and linking it all together. We just, I'm not familiar with that and a lot of people aren't either. So the entry level has now been reduced and that's a huge thing for serverless. Oh, that's cool. Um, so I will share the link uh, with uh, in the show notes uh, to your course oh, so that more people can check it out. Um, and um, it's great that you're giving, you know, you're giving back to the community as well. And I, I was aware of uh, Breath and um I spoke to the guy that created Breath about some of the things that he's seeing, and he's also seeing a lot of adoption and interest uh, in the serverless, thanks to the fact that it's now just an easier entry point uh, into serverless yeah. and Lambda uh, for PHP developers. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll have to look at uh, Laravel Vapor as well. Sounds like it's also quite a useful tool for, uh, for people that, um, that want to get into Lambda from, that, from, from uh, Laravel. Well, uh, the thing with Laravel Vapor is created by the Laravel team, right? So... Breath exists and Breath is really good. And Breath, I've heard, if you're doing more advanced stuff in the serverless world, Breath is just a fantastic option. The com the thing that gave me the confidence to move to serverless was Laravel Vapor comes out and it's backed by the Laravel team, right? So that means it's actually going to be supported long term. And I'm not, I'm not, I like Breath as well, by the way. I'm not saying you shouldn't use Breath, but that's what gave me the confidence was the fact it was backed by Taylor, uh, Taylor Otwell and his team. And that's what made us move. Breath is really good too, by the way. I'm not, that's not me taking a dig at breath. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can have a two very good tools in the space. That, that's that's, that's exactly. not a problem with that. <laughs> exactly. Um, what about other things like uh, in terms of some of the uh, practices, uh, like testing? Uh, do, you, do you find that a struggle? What about in terms of uh, mm. uh, monitoring? I guess that does uh, Laravel Vapor give you some built-in uh, monitoring integration that you can use? Yeah, so Laravel Vapor certainly gives you the basics. I mean, I think they're just linking into CloudWatch and surfacing it in an easier to read way. Anything more complex, you're going to have to learn CloudWatch, and that's just that's just how it is. With regards to you know testing, just use a CI tool. We run, yeah. I mean, 
we have we run our tests and our tests are pretty good um it's pretty good coverage in terms of i don't think i do anything differently with um serverless deployment versus server deployment for the testing okay so i guess that that's one of the benefits of uh, being able to take laravel and then put it into lambda as it is so that you don't have to change um the way you well the way you use it and like writing code and writing and tests for them yeah no that, i mean like i say taylor's Taylor and his team at Laravel have done all of this stuff. They've made they the thing that Taylor does really well is he he takes these complex things like recently there's something called Octane uh, and it's basically it's Swool. I don't know if you know Swool and he's made it really simple. It's like uh, you know how Go works where um, uh, Go is it's like multiple different processes just spun up and it's it's just faster base it's a long running process rather than just spin it up and then kill it it's long running process and they process all these requests over and over he takes these things and makes them simpler basically and that's what he did with serverless here so he's done all of this testing and things just worked you know we deploying things it just works it's just fantastic. So we really haven't had to tweak our test. It's been fantastic. Sounds good. That, that, that's great. Uh, that's one of the things that I guess the, I've had to change quite a bit uh, uh, since I moved to Lambda. It's just how I run my test, uh, how I do a lot of things. But I guess uh, I've come from maybe quite a different background to you. Um, what language do you write? Uh, right now, they say I'm using uh, Node.js. Uh, and um, it's... Uh, it's no, it's the, uh, I'm, I'm not running Express app in the Lambda function uh, for performance reasons, and uh, and so you know some of the things that I, I'm used to writing tests uh, have to just be a, a bit, uh, be adapted to the way I write Lambda functions nowadays. So you're writing functions. Do you have, you have multiple functions for your application? Yeah, yeah. I've got uh, one function. So you imagine you've got an API. I've got uh, one function per endpoint, uh, well per endpoint and method, as opposed to oh, right, one function okay. that handles everything. Okay, so and that's a big difference. So we have our we have our lambda function for web requests, and then we have our lambda function for commands. So things that might run in the cron job, you know, if I'm sending out emails every day, and then we have a lambda for our background queue. And the background queue is linked to SQS, and the whole point is it goes into SQS and then comes through to the lambda queue. So there's only three lambdas per project. We definitely don't have it like that. So that it's just it's really simple, and that might change in the future as more and more people say things like, you know, we want different priorities on our queue. We don't want the queue to be drowned through with various jobs, and that might change. Who, who knows, right? But things are very very simple still. We definitely, I've seen that set up with the. Um, there were multiple lambdas, one lambda per API endpoint, but we're definitely not there with that kind of stuff. That's that's interesting to hear. Yeah, there's some inherent the trade-offs uh, with the two, with the two different approach. Um, the the approach you've taken is definitely a lot simpler, and also the fact that uh, you've got tooling that allows you to just take your existing application as it is in the Laravel and the running in Lambda. Yeah, exactly. So it makes life a lot easier. You don't have to change the way you write tests. You don't have to change the way uh, you structure your code. Everything just works as before. But you get all the benefits that Lambda gives you in terms of the you know, the fact that there's no management of uh, servers, uh, scaling. Yeah, exactly. You get all the benefits uh, out from the Lambda platform. Um, but there's, there are also uh, trade-offs in terms of uh, performance, in terms of uh, uh, cold start, but also in terms of security as well. Uh, whereby you know, if you've got multiple functions, you can be more uh, more granular in terms of how you issue the IAM permissions to individual functions. Very so true. in the case of a compromise, then you, know, you could limit your blast radius. But it's it's it all depends on what's uh, I guess what's important to you and what you're used to. Um, 
Certainly, I think that the fact that this uh, this easy entryway uh, for people to get into Lambda and get the benefit from it, I think is is great. Uh, so you probably want to do more, um, I don't know, more interesting stuff, and you want to you know pay more attention to security around Lambda permissions and things like that. Then the, maybe let's start looking at the breaking your your API into smaller functions. Uh, but then again, it's you know it's all dependent on what's more important, uh, what's most important, getting a product out there and the scaling, and then and then you know, dealing with uh, other you know, things that optimizations that that can come later, right? No, for sure. And cold starts is an interesting topic, isn't it? That's always been probably the number one criticism of Lambda, and they released this ability to provision concurrency right and i found that interesting a lot of people are sort of scared of that and i think well no just go into your lambda page look at what you typically use and you can get an idea and you can provision that and it is faster i mean i like using it we're probably going to use it we're working on v3 right now and we've i think we switched back because when you deploy you have to wait for it to actually provision and when you're doing when you're doing regular updates it's annoying right so we've, we've switched back to we have a warming system so it gets pinged to, to be kept warm and that's done by vapor but I like provisioned um, concurrency. I think if you're not using provisioned currency, take a look at it because it's, it's quite exciting. Yeah, especially if you've got a steady traffic as well um, with a provisioned concurrency. Yeah. yeah, you've you've got that uh, nice, uh, um, a nice uh, like warm instances that's running all the time. And uh, yeah. we actually work out that if you can use about 60 or 70% of the utilization, uh, like in terms of the Lambda instance that you've got running, uh, it's actually cheaper than the running Lambda. 60 or 70, the, really? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, because the, when you look at the pricing for provision concurrency, there's a per hour cost, but then the per request cost is cheaper compared so to on yeah. demand. Um, so if you've got enough invocations for those uh, functions that you are provisioning, uh, then you actually end up cheaper on your bill compared to uh, you know yeah. running just on demand functions. And plus you get I a benefit of it. Was of it. As low as sixty or seventy? That's a surprise to me, but that's really good. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just a back of the neck and napkin calculation we did uh, when it was sure, announced. Sure. Uh, but it's, it's it's around there, I think. Yeah. Cool. Um, but okay, so I think uh, that's all the questions I had uh, for today. Uh, Jack, thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything else that uh, you'd like to share with the audience before we go? Maybe upcoming changes to your uh, to your course or other things that you're doing? Oh, I said I wouldn't do another plug, but um, so I'm working with Alex Debris. Uh, just after we finished uh, version three, we're going to be launching a course called DynamoDB for Laravel. If you're coming from a kind of relational database background and you're looking to move to something like DynamoDB, I'm working with Alex and my role is to extract what he knows and put it in the in the um in a way that us relational database developers can understand because Alex is a DynamoDB genius and it's ridiculous how much he knows. So my role is the extractor. I'm, I'm the beginner's mind extractor and we're packaging up a course and we're going to be releasing that. So that's DynamoDB for Laravel.com. Um, and then, yeah, Fathom, Fathom Analytics V3 is heating up right now. Do check us out at usefathom.com. Uh, it's really, really good. My co-founder designed it and it is beautiful. So you've got to come and try that, okay? <laughs> nice and uh, yeah i just had alex on this uh, on this uh, podcast uh, the last episode as well uh and uh, yeah alex is a, is a great guy uh so he yeah good luck with the course sharp. yeah he it's going to be a good course he's a sharp it's very interesting i mean if, if you just had him once you've spoken about all of this single table design stuff it's so fascinating like don't just you know you know it sounds like something different and it sounds a bit crazy don't ignore it it is crazy some of the stuff that he talks about i really just buy his book as well it's a really good book when i read his book i was just i was reading it just going whoa whoa i go this doesn't make sense you can't do this this is no you can whoa so definitely check out alex debris book is very
very good. Yep, you'll find the links uh, to his book as well as uh, to the last uh, episode where I had a chat with Alex about single table designs, uh, uh, why and why not. Uh, so check it out. And again, Jack, thank you so much. And uh, it's been a pleasure having you here. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Good luck with uh, Vision, Vision 3 and, uh, and see you soon. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. So that's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. To access the show notes, please go to realworldserverless.com. If you want to learn how to build production-ready serverless applications, please check out my upcoming courses at productionreadyserverless.com. And I'll see you guys next time.